Imagine you're a king. And you've got all the pressures of being in charge. You're responsible for the welfare of your people. But there's something else. God said he would establish his kingdom on earth through your family line. And you know this. Your people know this. Your enemies have heard this, and they're watching. You're part of the 12 tribes who united to form the nation of Israel, but that feels like a long time ago. That nation is now split, and it wasn't amicable. Ten tribes to the north calling themselves Israel or Ephraim. Two tribes to the south calling themselves Judah. And this is where you rule. Your kingdom is small, but the city of Jerusalem is in your borders. The temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence is said to dwell among his people, is within your borders. And you're the king descended from David's line. And God has said he will establish his kingdom on earth through your lineage. It's a, it's a big job. And on your western border, the Assyrian Empire is getting bigger, faster, and stronger. You know, the writing is on the wall for the surrounding countries. It's just a matter of time before Assyria invades and expands. And if that wasn't bad enough, you've been attacked by the nation of Aram on your eastern border and by Israel on your northern border because the split wasn't amicable. And so many of your people have died. And so many of your people were taken captive. But the Israeli soldiers didn't make it all the way to Jerusalem, which is where you live. But you've just found out some devastating news. Aram and Israel have formed an alliance to take over Judah and fortify their border against Assyria and put their own king on the throne to bring an end to David's family line. It's not hard to read between the lines of what that means for you. And this is the moment that Ahaz finds himself in. It seems strange to start Advent with a story about a random king from the ancient Near East. Ahaz gets this little moment in scripture, and then we forget about him. Truthfully, I forgot about him until prepping this message. But his story, his experience is deeply connected to the themes of Advent, longing and waiting for rescue. An awareness of the way things are that aren't the way that they should be and trying to hold on to the promise that God is making all things new in the face of very real forces that seem to say the opposite. Advent is a season of honest recognition of how things are and something between longing, anticipation, and hope of what they will one day be. It's a season of waiting. A time where there are natural reminders in the world as the days grow colder and the nights get longer and we long for the light and warmth of the sun. Our our bodies even carry a physiological response. If you've ever dislocated a joint, you know that there's a pain that's only relieved when the dislocated bones return home. And Advent is a season to reconnect with that ache in our own souls and in the world around us, the longing to return home and to look in expectation and hope towards what God has done and what God will do. It seems strange to start Advent with a story about a random king from the ancient Near East, but this passage is the first mention of Emmanuel. 
of God's promise to be with us, embodied in a person. And what we'll discover is that it's a promise that was spoken in the midst of massive failure. DNA has a story. We get to see the question that we will all wrestle with. What will we do in the waiting and the longing, in the moments of fear and vulnerability, where trust gets tried by time and urgency and circumstance? We recognize the Advent season once a year, but Advent is every day. The waiting, the longing, the anxiety, the urgency are every day. And what I want to offer us this morning, and that I hope we can see in this passage, is that the promise of Emmanuel was not a solution invented by God to solve a problem, but a part of who God has always been and always will be, embedded unchangingly in his character. Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote that Advent-recommended reading that Brandon was just talking about, writes about those three comings of Jesus. And we're good at two. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and Jesus' future return. Emmanuel is an invitation to connect with the third coming. Jesus coming to us in the present, today, now, in the midst of whatever's going on. God wants to talk to us through this passage about what it means that he is with us in the everyday, in the waiting, in the longing, in the fearful and vulnerable places where it's so easy to forget and where trust gets hard. So we get started this morning. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. We recognize the waiting that's represented in this room. God, would you open our eyes to remind us who you are? Help us see you. We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. We're in Isaiah chapter 7 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, go ahead and turn or tap your way there. If you don't, You'll find some red Bibles on your row. Like Brandon said, we're going to start all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. So Isaiah 7, verse 1, starts on page 605. If you don't have a copy at home, please take one with you today. We'd love for you to have it. As you turn there, let me remind us briefly of what we're about to parachute into. Remember, the nation of Israel is divided in two at this point, Israel and Ephraim to the north, Judah to the south. And the book of Isaiah opens with a prophetic poem about Judah being on trial, they haven't been faithful in their covenant relationship with God and in their treatment of the poor, because of course they haven't. What we see constantly through the story of God's chosen people is their consistent failure and God's continued faithfulness to what he said he would do. And the Assyrian Empire is growing on the west, and Aram and Israel have formed an alliance to the east and to the north and are threatening violence in the intent to dethrone Ahaz in Judah. But what Isaiah seems really interested in exploring in this chapter isn't military strategy or how to build effective alliances, but simply, can God be trusted to do what he said he would do? In the waiting, that's what we're really asking, isn't it? We'll see this passage played out in four scenes, the fear, the faithful presence, the choice, and the promise. Let's pick up our passage in Isaiah 7, starting in verse 1. 
This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king, Rezin, and Israel's king, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. This is that first attack. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, that they've combined forces, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. This is the fear. It seems like a no-win situation. You've got one empire to your west that just feels like a ticking time bomb. If you're a history person, then you know the Assyrian Empire was a special kind of brutal in war and towards the people that it conquered. And then you have an alliance formed to the north and to the east that already has a history of violence towards you. Ahaz is surrounded. And it's important not to undersell the danger Ahaz is in here. He's afraid, and rightfully so. There's real threat to his people, to his reign, to his life. Trees in that part of the world are sturdy and compact, adapted for harsh conditions. So you can imagine the kind of wind it would take to cause a forest of them to shake. This isn't a breezy situation. Ahaz and his people are in an understandably activated state. They're waiting for what seems like certain disaster and scrambling to find a solution. They are afraid. Let's look at what happens next, continuing in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out with your son Sheir Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Now, this section starts with oddly specific instructions, right? <laughs> Uh, meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. It's like you expect it to include, go left at the third tree if you've hit the goats. You've gone too far. Here's what's happening. At that time, Jerusalem's water supply was kept above ground, and so it was vulnerable in an attack. What Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem were probably expecting was a siege, where Israel and Aram would surround the city, cut off supply lines and just wait until they starved to death or got desperate and had to leave the safety of their gates and walls and come out and fight. And Ahaz is checking on his water, most likely looking for how to protect and defend it. And I love what these verses show us, that God knew that that's where Ahaz would be. And that's where he sends Isaiah to meet him. He doesn't tell Isaiah to call a meeting in the temple. He sends Isaiah into the middle of Ahaz's activated 
state and self-preservation strategy, and those are never our pretty moments, are they? Uh, certainly not mine. Uh, when we're activated and, and grabbing for safety and security, a, a sense of control when things feel out of control, and what we see here is that God doesn't call Ahaz out of it, but sends Isaiah to meet him in it. Because Emmanuel has always been a part of who God is, faithful presence. Even in our unpretty moments is an unchanging part of his character. And something that I've been thinking about as I've spent time with this passage is that if I was Ahaz, this isn't where I would expect God to show up. I'd be looking for him on the battlefield or in the victory celebration. So often we look for God, myself included, in the answer to the waiting, in the answer to the longing, like when it's done and we are on the other side. But what we see here is that first, he's at the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field, waiting to meet Ahaz in the very place where he's feeling the need to protect himself. God is with us, not in our preferred state, the ideal version of ourselves or in the answer to our problems, but right where we actually are. Even if that's in the middle of our activated self-preservation, reaching for everything but him. We talk about something called trust structures a lot, and Brandon preached a beautiful sermon on them last week, so I won't go too deep here other than to say it is super important to develop an awareness of what our trust structures are so that we can recognize when we're starting to reach for them. And so I want to quickly bring us back through a simple framework that he laid out, again, for the deeper dive, hit the podcast. What are trust structures? Trust structures are simply where we rely on ourselves instead of on God. What we try to build, maintain, or accumulate for ourselves to make sure that we are okay and especially in periods of waiting, when we are experiencing longing, when we're aware of the gap between how things are and how we want them to be, the draw for us to reach for those trust structures gets stronger and stronger. Robert Barron distilled them down into four basic areas. Brandon talked about them last week. Money. Can I accumulate enough to keep myself safe? Power, can I position myself in a place where I can control the events and people in my life? Pleasure, can I outweigh the difficulties I face through experiences I curate? And honor, can I cultivate my own significance through positions and relationships where I'm held in high esteem? Just writing those little short summaries this week, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Waiting and long-suffering, those seasons are when we're extra tempted to reach for those trust structures as something to hold on to. They expose them a little bit more than usual. And so instead of running from them or trying to distance ourselves from them, right, because those are rarely our pretty moments, like when we 
realize, oh crap, I'm trying to power through this season of waiting that's gone on too long and needs to be over now by trying to exert control over the people and events of my life. That doesn't feel good to discover. But listen, instead of running from those moments or shutting down in a sense of guilt or shame, I want to invite us to recognize God with us. Emmanuel, in those moments, to think about Ahaz trying to keep his water safe and God sending Isaiah to meet him right there. Can I share a spicy thought? I don't know what I would have done if you'd have said no. (laughs) We'd have been at an impasse. God really does work through seasons of waiting and longing in our lives. If we let him, if we can see him there with us, and this is so true of me, we're so anxious to get to the other side, right, for the answer to our waiting or our longing that sometimes we miss the work that God is doing now through the thing that we want to be over. It's that third coming of Jesus we talked about earlier. Jesus coming to us in the present, in the here and now. What if Emmanuel isn't just about a sense of comfort until our different future arrives? What if it's less about what's on the other side of whatever we're going through and more about our healing and wholeness in this moment? About how God is showing up now in the things that we reach for that can never bear the weight of what we ask them to do in order to bring us real lasting consolation and healing. Have you ever been around people that just have this deep groundedness and perspective, this depth to their faith, this deep trust in Jesus? When you talk with them, you'll find that that never comes through things always working out or through an easy life. It's always through waiting. It's always through longing, even unmet longing. It's always through suffering or trial or failure, some experience of the gap between how things are and how they will one day be, and recognizing Jesus with them in that space, even if it's messy, and wrestling with God about what he's doing through it. And look, I confess it so often, I want the depth, but I don't want the suffering. I don't want the waiting here's what this passage is doing in me, is it's opening my eyes to how God is present in those seasons and how he might want to work in my life through the very things that I want to be over, to heal me, to reset some dislocated bones. Uh, There is a choice to look to Jesus in those moments, though. Look, honest confession, I can be pro-level status at being very present to the things that I wish were different. God is forming in me, though, an ability to see Jesus there, too, and an openness to what he wants to do through them. God, through Isaiah, meets Ahaz in his trust structures at the edge of the water that he's trying to keep safe. 
I'm going to throw a couple verses back on the screen because I want us to continue to see how God is present to Ahaz in, this, in that moment, like what, his, what he does through his presence. Take a look back at verses four through six. Uh, this passage starts with the words, calm down and be quiet. That's the patron verse of teachers, <laughs> especially at the end of a semester. Put that on a coffee cup for your teacher friends this Christmas, guaranteed hit. These verses are God telling Isaiah to say, look, I I know what these jokers are up to. They want to take you out, and they want to put someone else on the throne. And this is nerd-level stuff, but notice in this section how God uses indirect names here. Look, verse 4, the son of Ramalia. Verse 5, the son of Ramalia. Verse 6, Tabil's son. What's up with that? That God is using these indirect names, the son of this person, the son of that person, to help Ahaz pause and consider his own family line. He's the king in the line of David. God is reminding Ahaz of his identity. Did you know that the call to remember appears in the Bible more than the command to obey? That tells us something. So much of our own struggle and so much of the chaos that we create comes because we forget who we are and we forget whose we are. Waiting, longing, and long-suffering only escalates that dynamic. The longer that we wait, the easier it is to forget. Tyler Staten has this quote in his book on prayer that I think bridges these two things that we're talking about. The trust structures we reach for and how easy it is to lose sight of what's most true about who we are, says this. I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that you are loved. Loved right now without qualification or restriction. Loved unconditionally for who you are. Loved in a way that you can't lose. The bad news is that you find it very hard to believe that and even harder to experience it. Your instinct is and will forever be to try to drum up your own lovableness, to become lovable in some way that you can define and control, to try to become in your own eyes what you already are in God's. When you find yourself in seasons of waiting, God is there to remind you whose you are. God's faithful presence through Isaiah meets Ahaz in the middle of his self-preservation and his trust structures, reminds him who he is, and this third one blows my mind. Look at verses seven to nine. God clearly says, it's not going to happen. They're not going to take you out. Wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of clarity sometimes? And verses 8 and 9 function as a poetic device. The first two phrases in each stanza geared towards the two countries forming an alliance against Ahaz. The third phrase, a prophetic word. Take a look. The chief city in Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria. The chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in your faith then you will not stand at all. 
Israel, a.k.a. Ephraim, has already made its choice and will be taken over within 65 years. And the same choice is now in front of Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And there's a gap in the story between verses 9 and 10. Isaiah doesn't tell us what happens or what Ahaz says or does, but in all likelihood, either in his response or his actions, he's showing that he's going to pursue an alliance with Assyria to make the metaphorical deal with the devil, to try to guarantee his own safety. And in verse 10, God speaks through Isaiah again. And given that context, this response is mind-boggling. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. What do you want me to do for you, Ahaz, to show you that you can trust me? More on this in a minute, but first let's stop and see God's goodness, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, even in the midst of resistance and potentially even direct defiance. He is still a faithful, generous gracious presence. He meets Ahaz while he's trying to protect his water, reminds him who he is, and when he still struggles, he leans in and says, ask. God's not afraid of our doubt, our disappointment, or our anger, or our frustration. He wants us to engage with him, to wrestle with him honestly and openly about what's going on, what doesn't line up, where he feels absent even. And look, we're not Ahaz, we're not the king in the line of David, but what, God, but what is God communicating about himself through these actions? What do we get to see about God's character? Because that's the choice that's in front of us all the time, especially in the waiting, especially in the longing and moments of long suffering. God's character. Can God be trusted to do what he said he would do. And that's why I'm so eager today to point us towards God's faithful presence, not just in the answer or on the other side, but in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through now or will go through in the future. That as David Benner says, the God who is Emmanuel is just as with us in the moments that we would never choose. He's still good. He's still gracious. He's still faithful. He's working, refining, preparing, healing. He's there. Ahaz makes his choice. Actually, probably did a while ago. Verse 12 says this, but Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Sounds great at first, especially if you were here last week and heard Brandon preach on the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus. We talked about the difference between seeking and demanding, about how Jesus always honors the seeker, never the demander. And what we see in Ahaz's reply is that while he's not demanding, he's not seeking either. He's not even open to being sought after. He's made the choice about what he's going to do. He says he's not going to test God, but that can take different forms. We can test God through aggressive accusation, demanding, or through a passive unwillingness to engage, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Ahaz says, 
no to God's invitation to demonstrate his trustworthiness. Just like the Pharisees in last week's message, he's unwilling to face up to the spiritual realities of the situation. And he hides behind a veil of religious piety. I've been holding part of the story back. There's a parallel account to Ahaz's rule in 2 Chronicles 28. And what we learn from that account, aside from the fact that he was already a train wreck of a human being who was practicing child sacrifice, is that he did ask the Assyrians for help. And they didn't give it. And oppressed Ahaz and his people in return, even though, get this, he plundered the temple and gave what he took to the Assyrians as bribe money. The consequences of Ahaz's choices can be found in Isaiah 7 from verses 17 to the end of the chapter. God will work through the Assyrians to bring judgment on Judah, and the land will go through decreation. What had been cultivated over hundreds of years will go back to wilderness and wasteland. It's like the land slowly begins to reflect the state of the soul. It's captured in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 22. At the time of his distress, King Ahaz himself became more unfaithful to the Lord. What will we do in our waiting? in our longing, in our long-suffering, in the gap between how things are and how they should be. This passage sets a simple framework that I see time and time again in my own life. Uh, The way of self-preservation or the way of trust, which brings us to the promise. Verse 13 says this, Isaiah said, listen, house of David, that's you, Ahaz. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, you're going to get one anyway. And this is what I love about digging into this passage today. This is not the context that most of us have when we see this verse on a Christmas card. (laughs) Right? You're going to get a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. At the time of his distress, King Ahaz became more unfaithful. God responds by promising his future presence. And so often I live in a way that says what I really believe is that God's presence with me is a nice idea, but not a concrete reality. And when I do, I create chaos and destruction, the kind of decreation captured in verses 17 to 25, as I try to operate in my own strength and wisdom, especially in trial and stress. I see the trust to life, self-preservation to death theme in my own life. Like I am guilty of choosing my own way, just like Ahaz. And yet, and yet... The promise of God is Emmanuel, God with us. I want us to see something about what this promise means in verse 15. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Uh, Curds and honey were the foods of poverty, of having to live off the land, of having to let your milk spoil and gather food from bees because you've got no crops, no orchards, no area to cultivate on your own. 
Emmanuel will enter into the poverty and oppression of his people. He will be with them in it. He will share their struggle. And this is a promise spoken in tragedy and not in triumph. And there's something profoundly beautiful about that. Ahaz was a dumpster fire of a person. The legacy of the lineage of the Davidic kings is failure, and yet, God is faithful to his promise. It's 600 or so years later, after lots and lots and lots of waiting, into the gap between the way things were and the way they were supposed to be, a young woman who became pregnant under unexplainable circumstances gave birth to a baby boy who lived as a refugee in Egypt, and then under Roman oppression, who entered into the poverty and struggle of his people. And even though he was God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He didn't just enter into the poverty of his people, but bore their sin, shame, and suffering on the cross. God's promise is presence. A presence that enters into whatever our lives may hold. A presence that doesn't just bring comfort, but empowers us to move towards trust and away from self-preservation. A presence that brings peace and consolation through healing and grounded identity that empowers a defiant faithfulness that in the moment may sting, that in the moment may feel unfair, even like a death. But the God who is Emmanuel is a God who transforms death into life, sometimes in ways we don't expect Sometimes after lots and lots and lots of waiting and struggle, but in ways that set our hope on what can never change, in ways that open richer experiences of who we are and whose we are, that draw us deeper into life with Jesus. That's what I want for us this Advent season, to experience that third coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, with us here and now? Where is the Holy Spirit meeting you with the promise of Emmanuel this Advent season? May God give us the grace to slow down from the seasonal hustle and bustle that is so often a cover for the discomfort of waiting and of longing. May the Spirit open our eyes to the faithful presence of God in all things and through all circumstances. May Jesus be our hope and firm foundation in the waiting. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. Would your presence be real and felt? Would you bring a comfort that leads to healing, wholeness, true consolation? We thank you for who you are, for who you will always be. God with us.